don't necessarily want you to raise your hand on this question this morning, but a question that kind of popped in my mind as I was working through this message and working through this next section of Matthew into this series is, have you ever doubted what the Bible says about God? I think at one time or another we've all wrestled with that. Let's take it a step further. Have you ever doubted what the Gospels say? When it comes to knowing who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us, have you ever doubted the Gospel? Have you ever doubted what the Bible says about the Gospel? The truth is, if you have ever done that, you're not alone. There are many who have wondered and who have sat and struggled with the things of God. And if you've ever wrestled with God over what he is doing in your life, why he's doing things in your life, you are not alone. Because there are times we doubt who God is. There are times we doubt his word. One of my favorite heroes of the faith is Billy Graham. And you see him on the screen behind me. He is one of my heroes of the faith. Had the opportunity to see him in person back in 2001, one of the last crusades he was able to do in person before his health started to get to the point where he could not travel anymore, down in Jacksonville, Florida. And got to see him in person. Had seen him on TV a hundred times. Heard him on the radio, but to see him in person share God's word. But there was a point when Billy Graham was wrestling with questions of his faith. In 1949, he was getting ready to head to Los Angeles for the Los Angeles Crusade. A crusade that had been scheduled for three weeks ended up going eight weeks. And thousands of people hearing the gospel, lives being changed at that crusade that took place in Los Angeles. But the weeks leading up to the crusade, the weeks leading up to him boarding a plane and flying to California, he was struggling with doubt. He was struggling with doubting, was God true to his word? Was God true? And he had what we would call some serious doubts. Could he take God at his word? Could he trust God at his word? And so I want you to hear Billy Graham's words about this moment in his life because it was a pivotal moment because he wasn't sure he was even able to go to California to take part in those crusades because of the struggles he was having with God and his word. And we've all had moments like this. We've all had moments where we've doubted, is God who he says he is? Do we trust God and take him at his word? I want you to hear what Billy Graham said at this moment of doubt. He said that he took a walk up near the San Bernardino Mountains to a retreat center. He said he dropped on his knees in the woods. I opened my Bible at a random on the tree stump in front of me. I couldn't read it in the shadow of the moonlight. I had no idea what the text lay before me. He said that he uttered these words, and this was his prayer. Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the physiological and the philosophical and the psychological questions my friends and others are raising. And Billy Graham says he was trying to get himself on the same level as God to rationalize these things. And then he says the Holy Spirit freed him. And this is what Billy Graham says. 
Father, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. When I get up from my knees in this forest with my eyes filled, I will sense and know your presence was with me. Not all my questions will be answered, but there's a bridge that I've crossed in my heart and my mind, and I know a spiritual battle has been fought and won. Billy Graham, the greatest evangelist to live in our time, wrestled with doubt. Every hero of the faith has wrestled with doubts. Is God who he says he is? Is his word what it says it is? And the reality is even the most faithful will have these burdens in their lives where they wrestle with God. But may I remind you this morning that even when you wrestle with doubt today, even when you're struggling, the good news is the God whom you seek is to be certain to be there when you find him. The God that you seek is there when you're struggling and when you are doubting. And his desire is to assure you of his faithfulness. One of the greatest prophets in scripture, John the Baptist, wrestled with doubt. He struggled with doubt. If you haven't already done so, take your Bibles and turn over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And I want to show you a man who was struggling, a man who was wrestling with. A man who Jesus himself calls the greatest prophet ever to be born up to this moment. This great prophet was wavering and over, he was wavering over the identity of was Jesus the Messiah? Was Jesus truly who he said he was? And what John needed at that moment and what you and I need is an understanding that Jesus is worthy of our faith and our worship. He is so worthy of our faith. He is so worthy of our worship. And Jesus invites us to rest in him when we have these questions. He invites us to rest in him when we have moments of doubt. This morning, I want to show you a beautiful passage of Scripture. And this morning, we're starting the series called Portraits of Jesus. And looking at these different portraits like you would in a museum. They're all pictures of Jesus, but they all look different. Because they're taken from a different perspective. They're taken from, a, from the artist's idea and rendering of what that picture should look like. So this morning as we begin this journey, I want to show you the first portrait. And the portrait is simply this. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Messiah. That's the portrait I want you to imagine in your heart's mind this morning. That's the picture of Jesus that you see, that picture of a promised Messiah. Now, when we get to John chapter 11, not John, I'm sorry, we're in Matthew, but we're talking about John. That's the first mistake I've made today, and it's still early, so we're good. John the Baptist is in prison. He's in prison. He's wrestling with doubt. He is struggling with doubt. He is in this prison cell, and John doubts Jesus. John doubts Jesus. And so in order to wrestle and understand this doubt, 
he sends some of his disciples to find Jesus. Look with me in Matthew 11, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And look at verse 3 because here's the question that John is wrestling with. And he said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? John believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he is struggling. He's starting to wonder. He's starting to have doubts about who Jesus really is. Because he knows what Scripture says. He knows what the Messiah is supposed to do, but he's wrestling with this doubt because he's not seeing it. And so this morning, for just a little bit of time, I want us to understand where John is coming from. I think every one of us in this room struggle with this also, those moments of doubt, those moments where we wonder if God's really there when I'm going through what I'm going through. Does God really hear my prayers? Does God really see what I'm wrestling with? And so this morning, as we start our time together, I want us to consider the anatomy of doubt, the anatomy of doubt. And it's in three parts, and I think once we understand the anatomy of doubt, we'll kind of understand where John is coming from with his questioning. When he says in verse 3, are you the one that we're waiting for, or should we expect another one? In this passage, there are at least three things that we learn about doubt. And the first one is this, doubt often arises during difficult situations. You ever wondered and thought about the idea that doubt doesn't show up when things are perfect? Man, when things are going right, doubt never says, hello, I'm still here. But doubt shows up in difficult situations. Remember, John the Baptist, he's the one proclaiming God in the wilderness. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. He's pointing people to him. But now John is experiencing shame, hunger, physical torment while he sits in a prison cell. John is in a difficult situation. And he knows what this Jesus is doing and what's happening, but he is still struggling with doubt because of the difficult situation he is in. Now, let's be honest. If John is not in prison, he has no reason to doubt what's going on around him. But because of difficult situations you and I face, we will have those moments of doubt. But accompanying the difficult situations, there are also unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. Was Jesus really the promised Messiah? That is what John is wrestling with. Why he sits in that prison cell. Is this, is this the guy? Is this the one that I've been talking about? Is this the one that I've been sharing with people that God is going to send to judge? And here's why John is wrestling with these unmet expectations. For just a moment, take your copy of God's Word. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 61 for just a moment. Isaiah 61. And I want to show you what John is expecting, but he's not seeing. That leads to this unmet expectation. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I, John knows Isaiah's passage here. Yet what he sees is not happening. What he sees is not taking place. Up to this point, Jesus is not meeting the expectations of many of the Jewish people who've been waiting for the Messiah to come. Remember, John the Baptist had been preaching that the Messiah would come and bring judgment, that Rome would be wiped out and no longer in control, but Rome still rules. Rome is still in control, and John is in jail because of it. So is this the one? John is confused because Rome is still in charge. Sin is still rampant. There are political and religious corruption taking place all around him. And it's the same thing that's been going on generation after generation after generation. And John has been preaching about the coming judgment of the Messiah sent from God, but he's not seeing it. Instead, he sees a man who's hanging out with sinners and teaching about forgiveness and on top of everything else, he's not even fasting. Is this who we're supposed to be waiting for? And so this is why John has these doubts because of the situation, because of his unmet expectations. I think John is thinking this, is this the one? Is this the one that's going to deliver us? The one who's going to set the captives free? The one who's going to break open the prison bars because... Last time I checked, I'm still in prison for proclaiming this message, and nothing has changed. So are you the one? Are you the one we should be waiting for? So in the midst of these struggles, in the midst of unmet expectations, here's what else John is dealing with and we deal with as well, and that is we suffer from limited perception. We suffer from a limited perception. You see, John doesn't understand everything that's taking place right now. John does not understand what's happening around him, so he sends his disciples to go and find Jesus. And have you thought about the fact that many of our doubts and our questions arise from the same situation? Because we have doubt, because of our situation, our expectations are met, but we have a limited perception of, of what is going on. In the midst of our circumstances and our challenges, the hardest thing for us to do is walk by faith and worship God. That is the hardest thing to do when we're dealing with challenges, when we're dealing with struggles, because when tragedy hits, whether it's one tragedy or multiple tragedies, we all ask the same question. God, where are you? Where are you? God, I am following you. God, I am worshiping you. God, I'm doing everything your word tells me to do, but I'm dealing with this in my life. Where are you? And that's the same thing that John is dealing with in this prison cell. He knows what's supposed to happen. He knows what's supposed to be taking place, yet nothing has changed in his mind. And in his circumstances, everything is still remaining the same. Because he is wrestling with this doubt. And here is the thing that we wrestle with. 
we wrestle with these things happening in our life and our desire to serve God. And listen, yes, we know he is bigger. We know he is greater. But we don't understand the struggle and the trials. Now listen, there are trials that you and I will face because of sin in our life or sin in life of those around us. But even when the sin is, has nothing to do with our disobedience, our perception of what's going on around us is limited. Because think about this for a moment. John the Baptist has no concept of what Jesus is ultimately going to do. Think about that. John the Baptist doesn't know that Jesus, that Jesus is going to go to the cross. He doesn't know that. All he knows is this is the lamb who's going to take away the sins of the world. That's the proclamation that John made about Jesus. But he has no idea what Jesus is going to do. He really has no concept. And we forget that part. See, John wasn't, wasn't given any insight into what's to be next, what's going to happen to Jesus. All he knows is this is the promised one. This is the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. This is the one who's going to open the prison bars and make everything new again. Yet John is in prison, and he is struggling because he is trying to figure out the question, okay, if you're the Messiah and you're bringing your kingdom, when's it coming? When's it going to show up? Because I am here and I don't understand what I'm going through. And when you and I deal with these situations and these unmet expectations and these questions rise up, we have to realize that our perception is limited. Our perspective is limited because we don't understand everything going on around us. But what do we do? We trust in God because God knows what he's doing. And that's what John has to understand at this moment. God knows what he is doing. It may not make sense to John at the moment being in prison, but God is in control still. So we understand the anatomy of doubt. We all wrestle with it for those three reasons. We wrestle with doubt because of difficult situations, unmet expectations, and limited perception. We wrestle with doubt. That's the anatomy of doubt. But for I want to show you this morning, we're going to see it right here in Scripture. I want to show you the answer to doubt. There is an answer to doubt. Because in this Scripture and in our lives, the answer to doubt is twofold. Here's the first answer to doubt. When you and I confront doubt, we should confront it with biblical revelation. Let Scripture speak truth into our lives. Let Scripture speak on God's behalf. Look at verses 4 and 5 back in Matthew chapter 11. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Now remember, John's disciples have come to him and asked him the question, Hey, are you the one or should we expect another? And look what Jesus says to these men. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The words that Jesus is telling these disciples to go back and tell John are the same words we read over in Isaiah chapter 35, 5, and 6. And we just read some of these words in Isaiah 61, verse 1. 
He says, go back and tell him the things that you have seen and that you have heard because Jesus is indeed the promised one. Look at the first thing he tells the disciples to tell John in verse 5. He says, the blind see. Let me tell you how important that is because in the entirety of the Old Testament, think about this, church. In the entirety of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, no one was ever cured of blindness in the entire Old Testament. Some of you Bible scholars are going through your Rolodex right now. I can see it in your eyes. What about Jared? No, Jeremiah didn't do it. Isaiah, no, Isaiah didn't do it. Abraham didn't do it. Moses, no, Moses didn't do it. No one in the entirety of the Old Testament ever had their sight restored. Yet we read in Scripture over in Isaiah 35, verse 5, that the eyes of the blind will be opened. Now, this doesn't just refer to a physical healing, but it also refers to the judgment that the Messiah would bring. Listen, Jesus' miracles we read about here in verse 5 are the evidence of a new kingdom coming in. And what John needed to do was to trust that Jesus would indeed bring full and final judgment. We're going to read about that later in this chapter. But here's the thing to remember. God will be true to his word. Always and forever. God will be true to his word. And listen, for you and I to fight doubt apart from God's word, you're never going to win. You are going to struggle if you try to wrestle with doubt apart from what God's word says. Why? Because God's word is a rock, not because it makes things easier, because it keeps our feet from sinking sand amongst the difficult situations and unmet expectations. That's why we have his word. That's why Jesus is quoting scripture to these disciples to take back to John. He says, listen, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised to life, and the gospel is being preached. They are hearing the message that I've been sent to proclaim. And that's the message that he is sending back to John. So the first antidote, the first antidote for doubt is biblical revelation. Look at Scripture and look what the Word says. Let that be your encouragement in those seasons of struggle, in those seasons of doubt. But secondly, we battle doubt with joyful submission. Joyful submission. Look at verse 6. Jesus goes on to say to these two disciples, He says, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. To not be offended because of Jesus is saying essentially that you trust him. Even when it's not easy, even when it's hard, trusting Jesus seems contrary to reasoning. But he says, trust me, I have this. Trust me, I am in control. Remain grounded in what scripture says in the biblical revelation and look to him in faith. Because the reward is blessing, and that's a promise that comes from God. So, so far in the first six verses, we've seen that there's doubt, but we have found that answer to doubt. Trust him. Trust him at his 
word. So we see John going from doubting Jesus to now Jesus defends John. It's a role reversal. Now there are some who wonder if there was a dispute going on between Jesus and John. Because here is John the Baptist, this great prophet, and he is wrestling with doubt. He is wondering, is Jesus the one we've been waiting for? Or should we expect another? And now Jesus is going to defend John. And look at what he says in Scripture. Look at what he says starting there in verse 7. Because I want you to see that Jesus takes an opportunity to tell those who are listening who John really is. And not only defend him, but affirm him in what he has done. Why does Jesus, before we move any further, why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus defending John and affirming John? Here's the answer, because John was the greatest prophet. John was the greatest prophet. Look with me, starting in verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out and see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's house. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Think about what Jesus has just said about John the Baptist. Out of all the prophets that we have read about in Scripture, all the prophets who were born of woman, John is the greatest. He is greater than Abraham, Moses, Elijah. He's greater than Jeremiah and Isaiah. He is greater than every prophet mentioned in Scripture is John the Baptist. Now, this is not because, now listen, now here's where it gets a little interesting. And it may get a little tricky, but I want you to hang on here. Why is John the greatest? It's not because of his position, but it's because of John's story in redemption's history. Think about what John had the honor to do. Think about John the Baptist's message. What did he proclaim in the redemption story? Because yes, he was a prophet. He was God's spokesperson. But he is the only prophet, listen church, John the Baptist is the only prophet who would come and announce the Messiah. Every other prophet talked about one coming, but John the Baptist gets to announce, here he is, in all his glory, here he is. How do we know this? How do we know that this is even true? Go back to that moment where John is baptizing at the Jordan people, and people are just coming. Now remember, John is baptizing about repentance. Nothing about the forgiveness, about the repentance of sin. But remember what happens when Jesus shows up? Jesus shows up and doesn't say, hey, there's my cousin. He's family. John looks at Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Alrighty, class, little Old Testament lesson. If you go to the book of Exodus, and Moses is getting ready to take off from Egypt with the children of Israel, God institutes this ceremony called the Passover. And in the Passover, they had to find a lamb. A lamb that was one year old, wasn't blemished, wasn't broken, had no spots, no issues, and watch him for a few days and then sacrifice him. A devout Jew would understand what that lamb was for. Now John the Baptist is telling everyone, this is the lamb of God. This is the one. This is the promised one who is going to come and take away the sins of the world. Now here's what is so interesting about this thought is we see John doing these great things. We see John proclaiming him being better than Elijah, Isaac, Jeremiah, and a host of all these other prophets because he gets to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. But look at what he says. Go back to verse 11. He says, there is no one greater. There is no one greater. But here's something very interesting, church. As great as John was, and John's the greatest of the prophets, as great as he was, because he gets to announce the coming of the Messiah, there is a privilege reserved for those who come after John. Look at verse 11. I didn't finish the verse. Look at what it says with me. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but, the end of verse 11, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about me and you who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because remember, John doesn't have the complete picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus would do. All the prophets, all the men mentioned in Scripture, and including John the Baptist, have an incomplete picture. But the climax for me and for you is that we have a position and a privilege that is reserved for all believers who come after Christ. Think about it. Their perspective was limited. Isaiah really didn't know what the Messiah was going to do. He knew what Scripture said he would do, but he didn't see it fulfilled. Jeremiah, Isaac, Moses, Abraham, none of them saw it fulfilled. But guess who gets to see it fulfilled? You and I, because we're children of God. We get to see it after it all takes place. We read about the coming of the Messiah, him doing all these things. We get to see him die on the cross for our sins. We have the full picture that John didn't have. So you and I have a greater understanding of this portrait. We see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And because we have this, you and I, we have a greater privilege than everyone else. Because we get to continue telling about Jesus Christ to those around us. We get to continue to share the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done. But like Jesus and John, we will be opposed by this world. As great as all this is, we're going to have opposition. We're going to be opposed. Look with me in verse 12. 
He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence take the violent take it by force. The kingdom of heaven experiences opposition as we advance the gospel. Remember what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 10. Hey, you're going to be hated. Hey, you're going to get beaten, and you might even be killed for my sake. But that's going to happen because there are those who are opposed by this world. There are those who are going to hear the message of the Messiah and say, I don't believe it. There are those who are going to hear and say, that's nothing but a fairy tale. It can't be true. And there are going to be those who wrestle with that thought. But not only will it be those who will be opposed, but you and I, and it's not in your outline, but I wanted to share this with you, is that you and I will be criticized in this world. You're going to be criticized for sharing the gospel. Showing the world the portrait of, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one that John proclaimed, though he's sitting in a prison cell right now. You and I get to proclaim him knowing that we might do it from a prison cell. Because look at what Scripture says starting in verse 16. He says, but to what shall I liken this generation to? Like children sitting in the marketplace, calling for their companions, saying, We played the flute for you and did not dance. We mourned to you and did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber. Wine-bibber, I'll get it out there. A friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus tells us how different his ministry was from John. They said that John barely ate anything. He drank and he said, well, he must be possessed by a demon. That's John's problem. He's got a demon living in him. They look at Jesus in his ministry and they say about Jesus that he's a glutton. He's drinking wine all day. He's hanging out with drunkards. Here's the difference between John and Jesus. John, in his message, was warning of repentance, and it sounded like a funeral message. John's message wasn't one of hope and joy. He said, repent because you're a sinner. There's nothing glorious about that message. He's just stating fact. Repent because you're a sinner. But Jesus' message, Jesus preached on forgiveness. He preached on forgiveness that it's more like a celebration because he wanted us all to turn our sinful hearts against sin and turn our hearts back to him. But here's the reality. John and Jesus were met with the same response by the people. We don't like your message and we don't really want to believe it. And in John's case, he's currently in prison. But when you and I speak truth, when you and I speak the truth of a living God, at the end of verse 19, it says that wisdom is justified by her children. God hears our wisdom. God knows our hearts. God knows our thoughts. 
But in the midst of a difficult situation, in the midst of unmet expectations or even limited perception, you and I have to understand this, that Jesus is worthy of our trust. When I don't understand, Jesus is worthy of, my, of, his, of the trust that I have in him because of who he is and what he says. We've been reading this for the last number of weeks, but I remind you again, telling others about Jesus is not going to be easy. Telling others about Jesus isn't easy, but it's worth giving our lives for. And the last thought I want to give you this morning to think about as we close our time in your outline is this. We fight doubt in this world. We fight fear in this world. But we fight it with faith in the promised Messiah. Can I ask everyone in the room be very transparent and very honest this morning? Just by a show of hands, how many of you are dealing with something this morning? Be honest. We're all dealing with something. For some, it can be personal, it can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be mental. We're all dealing with something. So here's my question for you. And it's a twofold question I want you to think about as we get ready to move into a time of invitation. And you don't need to raise your hand, but I want you to think hard about the question. Do you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, or like John, are you stuck in a prison cell dealing with doubt? Every head bowed and every eye closed. This morning, yes, I can know who Jesus is, but still be stuck in that prison cell of doubt like John. Because of the situation I'm in, because my expectations aren't being met, and because my perception is limited, I can be like John this morning. Knowing the things that I am dealing with, knowing the things that I am wrestling with and struggling with, I can be like John right now. And I can truly forget that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That Jesus is the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. And this morning, that may be you. This morning, you may be struggling with doubt because of something you're dealing with or what a family member is dealing with. But I remind you that today you can take that doubt and lay it at the feet of the Savior who loves you, who loved you enough to die for your sins. There are some this morning who are saying to themselves, listen, there are things I got to get right in my life first before I can come to the Father. But as the song says, we come just as we are. Not polished, not perfect, not fixed. We come broken, we come wounded, we come hurting. Because he wants us to come acknowledging where we're struggling and give it over to him. In the passage this morning, we see a man wrestling with doubt. The same man who has proclaimed that Jesus was the promise, the lamb who would take away the sins of the world, is sitting in a prison cell wrestling with doubt. To the point that he has sent two of his men, his disciples, to go to Jesus and say, hey, are you the one or do we look for someone else? I wonder how many of us this morning are in that same boat wrestling Wondering, Jesus, are you really there? Jesus, are you the one who has died for my sins? Or am I looking in the wrong place? Instead of going to your word, am I trying to find other sources to get my answers? 
Do I really believe you're the promised Messiah? Or am I stuck in a cell of doubt? Many of you shot your hands up, said you're dealing with something. The question I would ask you this morning is, are you still dealing with it because you haven't given it over to him? Are you still dealing with that issue because you haven't released it and let Jesus deal with it for you or help you through it? This morning, we're going to stand and sing in a little while and sing this familiar hymn. This morning, this invitation is open to those who are here today who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You've never said yes to the free gift of salvation. You've never accepted that gift. This morning, the invitation is open to those who know Jesus but are walking a different direction, trying to handle the situation on their own. And instead, come back to him. Lay that doubt at the feet of the cross. And let him deal with it for you and walk beside you with it. This morning, this invitation is for some who may be desiring to be part of this church family. Whatever the case, in just a little while as we sing, do business with God. Don't wait and think, well, I can do it next week. Or do it in a couple of weeks. Because we're not guaranteed the next 30 seconds. We're not even guaranteed tomorrow. So when we move into a time of invitation, do business with God. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning that yes, we all wrestle with doubt, but your word is true. And then Father, as we wrestle with this doubt, we have assurance that comes from scripture. And Father, like Billy Graham, we understand that we may not get all the questions answered, but we know the source who can help us through it. So this morning, my prayer is for those in this room who may not know you. That, Father, they would come to know you and accept this free gift of salvation. Father, I pray for those this morning that know you but have walked away from you. They're trying to do things on their own. Father, I pray for those, for every one of those who raised their hand who are dealing with something. Father, that you would speak to their hearts. And, Father, you would help them in those situations. Father, I'm praying for those who may have a desire to be part of this church family. Whatever the case, Father, as we stand and sing, Father, we pray that you would do business in our hearts. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's all stand.